Hey, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, and the following is a sermon from our hopeful church plant, Santa Ana Reformed. We are under the oversight of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde and meet at 2 p.m. at Davis Elementary in Santa Ana, California. You can find us at the foot of the downtown Orange County Santa Ana Water Tower, as well as on our YouTube channel at Santa Ana Reformed and our Twitter handle at Santa Ana URC. Our address is 1405 Flower Street, Santa Ana, California, 92701. Enjoy the sermon and may the gospel of Jesus Christ dwell in you richly. The American dream is to, or is the struggle to make it and finally be comfortable. You've got a house, two and a half kids, or I think it's 2.6 kids, a white picket fence, and a paycheck that covers your needs, maybe with a little bit left over for your 401k. So life is great, needs are met, and you honestly can't remember or believe the last time that you had to worry. However, over time, the thankfulness gives way to expectation. You wanted this for so long, you dreamt of it, haven't. Your worries are, are, are less about making it and they're more about keeping it now. Discomfort, which was all you knew before, is actually now what you avoid. You were discomfortable all the time. Now you're comfortable. I never want to feel that again. You remember what it was like, so you, you never want to go back. And I think these fears, they pervade our culture. And they manifest themselves in our lives as well. If we're comfortable, I think our fear is, is more discomfort than anything else. And like discomforts, talking about sin can be a difficult pill to swallow, especially if we're comfortable. And sure, there's sin out there, we think. There's sin out in the world, but there's, there's really not sin inside of me. You do whatever you do to avoid anything uncomfortable. So somebody talks about sin, somebody talks about the injustice, you're like, I, I, can't, I can't touch that. It's not unlike a cancer patient bribing their doctor at a leveling the diagnosis. Don't tell me I have cancer. And so goes Amos 4. Israel is satisfied and comfortable without a covenantal relationship with Yahweh because really their comfort is at the expense of others. And the desire for comfort and satisfaction, it's not bad. But when it's at the expense of others and to the neglect of the Lord, you'll wait that meeting, prepare to meet your God. The comfort for those who confess Christ and the discomfort for those who are outside of him. Because meeting God can be an uncomfortable thing. Recall the judgment rendered on Israel in Amos 3. Right at the end is the destruction of the temple. And these calamities in Amos 3, 6 are from the Lord's hand. The roaring lion who calls for true worship. And this brings us to chapter 4. So we'll see this in three points. Point one is satisfied and distant from verses one through five. With self-defined comfort comes satisfaction and distance from the Lord. I feel good. Why do I have to come in? 
Then point two is judged and unmoved from verses six to nine. When we're comfortable being distant, when we're judged, we don't really feel moved to do anything. For this, this self-found comfort, this kind of inner comfort that we've created ourselves, softens judgment. That's not really that bad, is it? No matter what, we're not going to turn. And then point three is meet your God. Verses 10 through 13. Lest we think we can define our own worship, set our own comfort, and meet our maker on our own terms, we confront, or we are confronted by the divine warrior, the almighty God. And Amos asks the same question I will. Are you ready? And so I hope that this becomes clear throughout. You have come face to face with your maker in Christ and have been pronounced righteous through his work if you confess his name. And this is important. For this encounter with the Holy Lord of hosts both comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comforted. And we're going to see that as we start with point one, satisfied distance. And this is verses one through five. We'll start with verse one. Unless we think that there's some nefarious motive from Amos by, by calling somebody a name, voiced in the Lord's judgment, cows is not derogatory. It's more exposing. It's a visceral image, and it's meant to invoke you're fat and satisfied. You really, like, you have no need in this world. Or you feel like you have no need. You don't really have any cares. There's no needs. You're kind of grazing at your heart's content. You're kind of grazing through the mountains and the hills. So he's, he's actually describing those who are satisfied with more like self-generated wealth and riches. They don't feel like they have the need for anything outside themselves. And he's picking up language from Amos 2. In the Hebrew, these, these cows of Bashan, they speak to their husbands. Say, bring that we may drink. The Lord comes in. It's the same word for husband. It's Adonai. Both words, husband and, and Lord, are Adonai. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. And so they have crushed the needy. These cows of Bashan have crushed the needy and afflicted the poor, likely those within the gates of Israel, which is who they should be taking care of. The same people as we heard in Amos 3 that they should have been caring for. And it's this play on words. The, the cows of Bashan are talking to their husbands, the Adonais, their husbands, when the true divine husband says, no, you got something else coming for you. So this is, unlike what we hear, this, this is biblical social justice. It's caring for those within your community, those under the banner of the Lord. So the sovereign Lord, again, the same word for the husbands that the, the cows of Bashan, the woman, call for in verse 1, comes in with fish or with hooks and fish hooks. So this is kind of this image taking fish hooks, the snout of a cow, pulling the snout of a cow back, dragging it out of the community. He says, the days are coming, says the Lord. That prophetic formula that he uses the few chapters after to render kind of these new realities that are coming. 
And this because what they were doing is directly in violation of the Mosaic Law. We, we heard this in, in Amos 2 and 3. Especially found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It's take care of those who are poor in your gates. Leave off a corner for those who are hungry. Again, this is you're taking care of your community. The Lord said, or the Lord shall indeed judge those who violate this covenant. The agreement Israel came under after the giving of the law. He says, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. So it's, it's like him saying, you called for your husband to comfort. Bring, come, drink. Nothing's wrong. We haven't violated God's law. Let's kind of build up our own comfort. Let's feel good. But you did that to the detriment of afflicting the already affected. When you should have listened to the Lord who called you to worship him. He says, therefore, you're going to be cast out. If you've not listened to the Lord, you should be cast out. If you read carefully, though, I think verses 4 through 5, they should actually give you pause. They should strike us more than I think they do. The Lord calls those in verses 1 through 3. It says, come to Bethel and transgress. Literally, like, multiply your transgressions. To Gilgal and multiply transgressions. That's from the Lord. He's, he's saying, go and sin. Go and transgress. And so I think we, we, we will think, the Lord calls them to sin. I thought the Lord wants us to be holy as he is holy. To worship him in the way in which he has laid out for us. And so we rightly think there's more to this. The expectation when the Lord calls for his people is to come to worship him. When he calls, it's to worship him. And he calls them to Bethel, which is where the temple's at. And looking at the end of verses 4 to 5 is what this sin and transgression is. It is, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of, which, of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings, publish them, so for, or for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. That's their sinning. They're not doing it according to what the Lord told them to do. These multiplied transgressions and great sins that Israel is committing, these fattened cows of Bashan and their husbands commiserating, joining together in their oppression in exchange for comfort, that's their worship. They worship by doing this. For the act of their offerings, their sin, they're not doing what they're supposed to do, and they go to the temple as if nothing's wrong. They don't desire fellowship with the Lord. They trample over the ragged clothes and beaten bodies of those who have nothing to enter the gates of the Lord to worship according to their comfort, not according to his law. That's why he's saying, you're sinning in your worship. And to be frank, I think these verses should be harder for us to read than they probably are. We have to ask you, do we use our religious observances, as good as they are, more of a veil for us than worship? Are they a veil for the stuff we do on our own 
when we go to worship, we're like, oh, I can cover these over. I can cover all over my own sins. This comes to light, I think, in who we pray for. Do we pray for the godless, or do we pray against the godless? And how we care for our own, the needs of our community. These prophets are usually skipped over by, I think, many in the American church because they, they get a little bit too personal. And we're not divorcing religious observance. Lord's Day worship, ordinary means of grace, and family worship time throughout the week. Because these are good things divinely ordained for us to do for our growth in Christ. We're more asking, do these overflow for us? Because they're using this to cover over their sins. Not asking for the Lord to cover their sins. Our justification, our call in Christ is those who have been given the full credit of perfect righteousness and obedience under the law should flow into our care. They're using it to cover over their sins. It should flow from our sins being covered. And these are not opposed to each other. And they're, they're using their life in the pursuit of comfort outside of Christ. Looking like they're pursuing Christ so that they can be comfortable. And they become distant. Well, we don't need God. We can do this on our own. And when the Lord comes in judgments, they're unmoved. Like, this is, this is really not that bad. This brings us to point two, judged and unmoved. But there's a problem here because they're actually not comfortable. It's, it's a false comfort. They're more comfortable because they think they have distance from the Lord. But not actually comfortable. It's, it's like maxing out all of your credit cards with the creditors daily calling to pay the company back. A mountain of debts is behind you, and yet outwardly you've got the perfect life. A beautiful house, well-fed family going on vacations. That's, that's more or less the situation that Israel finds themselves in. They've got a debt they can't pay back, and they're acting like it's nothing. And woodenly rendered, verse, verse 6 may not make sense. It says, I, give, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of breath, or lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. Now we're used to cleanness of teeth being a good thing. You've brushed your teeth that day. But this cleanness of teeth is used for famine. It's, they, they haven't eaten food, so their teeth are clean. It's hard to have meat wedged in your teeth if you haven't eaten in days. But they don't return. Things may look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's no repentance. And you see, in verse 7, you see much the same thing. Verse 7, he builds off of it, says, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months of the harvest. I would send rain on one city, and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So it's, it's Israel. If, Lest they think they can just go to another city and, and receive help, they receive nothing. They go somewhere else to find a friendly neighbor willing to share their food, and they find nothing. So it's, it's the way of saying, you can't get out of this. You can't, you can't hide from me. You can't move from me. It's not for a natural reason. 
that Israel is experiencing the famine, but a divinely rendered judgment. It says, go look for help if you want. You're not going to find it anywhere. You're looking at all the wrong places. You're not looking towards me. You're not returning to me. You have transgressed my laws. I will treat you as you have treated others. The standard of the Mosaic law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. You gave nothing, I'm going to give you nothing. And then verse 8, these two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. So they go looking for help. They go looking for water. And as they gave to none to others, the Lord says, I will give you none myself. So the drumbeat of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart continues. It's almost like they say, I refuse to pay for my sin. You can't hide from me, the Lord says. Can't run from me. We see this in Amos 2, but right at the end, fleetness of foot can't get your way. You cannot distance yourself from my all-seeing eye. Verse 9 says the same thing. Struck them with blight, mildew, your many gardens, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet, you did not return to me. Your fields, your relationships, your hunger, your comfort, everything will be taken away. A reminder of Amos 3, 6 is really played out. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? can't pray to your gods, can't believe in yourself more, it's not, not try to time your harvest better for the production of crops, because this is Deuteronomy 28 played out. Deuteronomy 28 spells out the consequence of sin, not upholding the covenant of the Lord. There's about twice as many consequences for sin than there are for obedience. Because blight and mildew is actually used precisely in Deuteronomy 28 for a curse. It's what the Lord strikes the land with amongst famine, disease, destruction, and the like. So Israel is told precisely what's going to happen. Precisely what's going to happen as a result of their disobedience, and yet they don't return. They know the law, they transgress the law, and they think they can run away. They think the Lord can't see them. They think the Lord doesn't know where they're going. And these locusts chew up Israel, also at the beginning of Joel. Joel 1.4 has this. So locusts did the same thing in the middle of Amos. It's a recurring theme. It's a reminder of their time of Egypt. Locusts came in. What happened to Egypt is now happening to Israel. A return for Israel to the land which the Lord promised after their bondage in Egypt. But Israel doesn't return. As we talked about last week and really building off Amos 3, the disaster come, and I have not brought, up, but brought it, it can be a, a tough pill to swallow. More like a, a horse pill, unable to swallow. We often question is if God is all good and powerful, why is there evil and suffering in this world? And now you hear this and you think, not only is there evil and suffering, but the Lord uses it. Some people think this is even worse than they thought. But we have to remember 
why this has come upon Israel and why it comes upon us, the purpose of evil. This is divinely orchestrated evil. It's to bring Israel to repentance. Whereas ours, we, we don't know the reason for it. We do know the reason for Israel's. We do know one thing, it's for God's glory. Israel just doesn't see it. We may not plumb the depths of the reason for why God does and allows all things, but we do know its purpose. For its purpose here, and really in general, is to prepare Israel to meet her God. And I ask, have you met this God? This brings us to point three, meet your God. Introduced to locusts, finishing off the pestilence the Lord has brought to Israel on account of her unrepentance, the Lord then likens them to Egypt. So the plagues that came on Egypt, the Lord is now saying, Israel, you're no different. Whom he originally brought these plagues upon. It's this divine warrior presented to us in chapter 3. Shows up again at the end of chapter 4. He's treating Israel as he treated Egypt. And have, they, have they fallen so far as to be seen the same as a pagan nation? Israel knows the law. They have more revelation, and they fall. He then slays Israel's chosen men. It's the same word used for the Nazarites. Those, those become the Nazarites two chapters ago. When Israel cut the hair of the Nazarites, which is one thing that Nazarites can't do, and they caused them to drink wine when they made vows to neither cut their hair nor drink their wine, as well as the prophets to no longer prophesy, which is the thing they do. And so he wipes them out. It's like, if you're not going to use them, we're not going to use them. No mediators between them and God, no prophecy. There's no representative between God and Israel. So it's Israel meeting with God. Nobody between. So instead of a sweet aroma of the sacrifices in the temple wafting up to the, the nostril of God, if you want to call it that, the stench of these rotting bodies is what goes up. Those with Israel's camps will go into their nostril. Yet, Israel doesn't return. And if verse 10 wasn't bad enough, for the sake of comparison between Israel and Egypt, they're likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Those whom we would usually say, although they're way worse than us, they're way worse than Israel. God saves Israel. God saves Abraham from Sodom and Gomorrah. We think they're, they're a lot worse than I am. And the Lord shows otherwise. It says, Israel shall be lit up as Sodom and Gomorrah. And still, they don't return. These judgments get harsher and harsher, and Israel gets harder and harder. We ask the same thing. Have you refused, and do you continue to refuse, to bow your knee to the Lord? So you think about this. Israel has no mediator. There's no prophets, there's no representation, not even a temple or sacrifice or a priest to perform these rites. 
Israel then meets God, mano y mano, face to face, one on one. Beyond everything else spoken in this chapter, the pestilence, the disease, the disaster, nothing comes close to this, to the fear that this should put in us. I ask too, do you have a representative before the Lord? Or are you representative-less? Because that's Israel. They're meeting God face to face. The holy God without imperfection, pure in righteousness and justice, is now meeting with a filthy, unrepentant, and wayward Israel. How do you think this is going to go? The creator of the world, according to verse 13, creator of the hills, creator of the, of, the, of the spirit, creator of the wind, creator of everything, is one who calls Israel to attention. What do you have to say for yourself? You transgressed my law. You've trampled my people. You've forsaken me. You will not return. You've got to come meet me now. Nobody's between us. Just you and me. I bring up and I put down, the Lord says, I create and I destroy. Are you prepared to meet me? I ask you too, are you prepared to meet him? The Lord who formed and called you. And the remarkable thing, if you're a Christian, if you've confessed Christ as you have met him, you met him in Jesus. You met him through a mediator. This holy Lord, the creator of all things, brings judgment upon you because you have failed to uphold justice. You have failed to pursue righteousness. You have failed everything in his law. Has come to you in Christ. And he comes to you, he doesn't judge you. He judged Christ. Doesn't bring everything back that you've done and says, well, what about this? Or what about that? Are, are you really sure? He doesn't put the violation of the law that you did on you. He put it on Christ. For this holy God came in the second person of this perfect tri triunity bearing human flesh, do all that Israel, in Amos 4, is incapable of doing. Doesn't just not want to do, just can't do. And all that you cannot do. So that when you do face the Lord on Judgment Day, you will be acquitted. You will not only be acquitted, you will be rendered perfectly and beautifully righteous with the same record of obedience that Christ rendered. As if Amos 4 was flipped. You did pursue righteousness. You did pursue justice. You did obey every single letter of my law. So do you believe in Christ? Have you received the record of his perfect righteousness? The justice, unlike Israel, that he upheld to its fullest degree while living on the earth under the pressure of God's law. I plead with you to believe in him so that when you do, not if you do, when you meet God, he will not judge you. He will vindicate you. 
Let's pray. Lord, these are beautiful truths that when we buck against your law, our hearts will disobey, they will sin. But there's nothing in us that wants to obey them outside of your son Christ. And we find ourselves in exactly the same shoes as Israel does, where we don't return to you. We don't render to you what you're owed. We don't love you with all that we are. We don't love our neighbor. But Lord, you placed all of these sins on your son, Jesus Christ. And so we don't get the judgment. We don't, we don't receive the judgment of unrighteous. If we confess your son's name, we receive the judgment righteous. And so we're not judged. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in your son Christ. These are, these are hard words to hear if we have no mediator. But Lord, you've given us this mediator in your son Jesus. If we believe on him, all of this has been placed on him. And we receive the record of his perfect righteousness. So we thank you for all you've done for us in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.